the perfect combination of versatile athleisure and training apparel has arrived. Thanks to the visionary minds of New Balance, Clutch Athletics, and Rich Paul, the designs reflect the heart of the athlete and the spirit of the community. With rising defensive football stars Will Anderson and Chase Young on the roster, Clutch Athletics brings the best innovative gear to all athletes, giving them style and performance on and off the field. Learn more and purchase Clutch Athletics at NewBalance.com. You can now relive the best moments of the UEFA Champions League 24-7. The UEFA Champions League channel is a new 24-hour streaming channel serving non-stop goals, highlights, and full match replays from the world's most prestigious club competition. Reminisce on your favorite moments, legendary players, and brilliant goals with the UEFA Champions League channel streaming around the clock on Pluto TV and the CBS Sports app. Welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson, Tom Fernelli, Danny Cannell, and Bud Elliott. It's your call for the best college football coverage from National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between. CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast. Hey, y'all. I'm Bud Elliott, and this is my college football summer school series on Cover 3. I bring on the team experts from the 24-7 sports staff and ask them the questions I care about. No fluff. Which players will be toughest to replace? What position groups are sneakily better or worse than I realize? We get you the scoop on each team in 20 minutes or less. Let's go. Hey guys, welcome back into Bud Elliott's College Football Summer School here on the Cover 3 Podcast. Today, I'm going way out west, northwest. That's Washington State. We're going to bring in Jamie Vinnick, kookfan.com, longtime Washington State guy, to talk and break down this Washington State team. Jamie, welcome back to the show, man. Appreciate you having me back on, bud. Absolutely. So uh, a, a pretty nice you know, debut year last last year for Jake Dickert, 7-6 and six, uh, in, in the record column, uh, top 45-ish in the power rankings. That's, that's pretty good you know, for Washington State. It had to be a, an exciting and interesting year to cover after, after the coaching transition. Yeah, it was definitely an easier year to cover. <laughs> we'll start with that than uh, the tumultuous 2021. Um, you know, things just kind of went as – as a college football season should, you know, there was no crazy storylines um, in terms of vaccination status and coaching changes. But, um, you know, it was a lot easier to cover. But it was a fun season to cover. You know, they played some exciting games and obviously um, some games that they want back and games that they weren't able to close. And I think that was a big emphasis in the offseason is, you know, how do we go into a fourth quarter and not get run off the field and end up turning, you know, a, a four point deficit into a 14 point deficit or a, a 10 point lead into a, a loss. So. That was kind of, I think, the the big storyline of the season is, you know, while winning seven games is, you know, there was a feeling that they left some wins out on the table, that they had a shot to beat Oregon, they had a shot to beat Utah, um, and that they just weren't able to execute down the stretch. But overall, I think it was a um, a positive season for, for Washington State with a new coaching staff with so much turnover on the roster, new coordinators, um, new personnel that, you know, you get to seven wins, and, and obviously there's certain schools where that's not okay, but... I think for where Washington State was at, a seven-win season and getting to a bowl game pretty much met the standards of what was expected going into the year. I'm not intentionally trying to start negative here. I usually start an offense in these. I I had the offense 75th, which is not you know horrid, but it's it's nowhere near what I thought this thing was going to be. You know, last last June, what what happened that this offense wasn't you know like a top half, top third offense in college football. Yeah, I think the learning curve for Cam Ward was a little bit bigger than expected. Um, and he wasn't bad last year by any means, but he wasn't the dominant figure that I think Kook fans and, and even some national people thought he could be. I mean, he was one of the highest rated transfers coming out of the portal last year, and it, it was just a bit more of a learning curve. I, I think he was a little surprised at times at the defenses that he had to deal with. Obviously, I think the big issue was the offensive line. It just was not good last year. They had some injuries. Um, they had lost a lot of guys. You know, I think it was one of the biggest uh, letdowns from the Rolovich era that the offensive line just was not developed well enough. Um, and I think, you know, Clay McGuire came in. He did what he could. But, you know, when you're having to plug in a guy like Falili Fa'amoe midway through the season, and he's, you know, developed into a nice right tackle. But this was a guy who was playing defensive tackle last January and suddenly is playing starting steps at, at right tackle. So the offensive line, I think, was a letdown. And, 
I think the receiver play was a disappointment. I think a lot of people, myself included, expected a, a big jump from Donovan Ollie and Dejon Stribling. Those did not happen. Um, they had injuries. Renard Bell was banged up. Rob Farrell was banged up. I'm not sure that it was a great fit for Lincoln Victor in terms of what he's able to do, that that offense that Morris ran. And then, you know, Randy Cook fan will tell you that they never want to see a bubble screen <laughs> run ever again because it was such, <clears throat> excuse me, it was such an emphasis last year and it just didn't work. And obviously they had to run him sometimes because the offensive line couldn't protect. But it, it just, it, it was a, there was a lot of things kind of contributing. They had some injuries to the running backs. Nakia Watson and Jalen Jenkins missed time. It was a lot of things I think contributed to saying that this was not the offense that was hoped for just because no one was quite at the level that they were supposed to be at. Besides, I, I give Watson credit. He performed to where you would want him to be and probably above that. But everyone else was just kind of, a step below or a couple steps below where you expected. For sure. So they bring in a new play caller in, in, in Ben Arbuckle. What what changes did we're able to see in spring? How will this offense look distant or uh, different just stylistically? Well, I think the first thing that you notice, not even from a style standpoint, is that Cam Ward's footwork is completely different. Last year, <laughs> it was all backpedal. Um, it was just backpedal, 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 backpedal. And Arbuckle came in, and the first thing they worked on was, Take your three-step drop, take your five-step drop. You can't start backpedaling. That's when you get into trouble. So that alone, I think, is going to open up more of what they can do offensively. From a stylistic standpoint, there weren't many bubble screens, and that was such a huge part of Morris's offense. But there's a lot of tunnel screens. There's a lot of, you know, wide receiver screens that aren't of the bubble variety, you know, getting them involved in other ways. There was some trickery involved. And then I think there's just the, the short passes. You know, the the offense I looked to last year was the way that uh, Kalen DeBoer and Ryan Grubb ran UW's offense, drop, throw, drop, throw, eight yards, nine yards, and then stretch yeah. the field. There was a lot of that during the spring where Ward takes three steps, someone runs an out route, he hits them for seven, eight yards. Uh, and I think part of that's going to be the receivers are going to do a better job of getting open. They just didn't do a good job of that last year. And I think <clears throat> having a completely different receiver room is going to help in that regard. But I think Arbuckle is going to want to stretch the field more. And that's the one thing that Ward still has to work on. I think uh, I think via PFF, he was either worst or second worst in the country last year on throws over 20 yards. And we didn't see a lot of that during the spring. He, he was a little bit better, but that's kind of the big thing during the summer that, okay, he's got to be able to get to that point where he can stretch the field because it opens up so much more of the offense. You know, half the reason last year the bubble screens failed so miserably is because there wasn't a threat to go down the field. Teams just, you know, press at the line. They're able to blow everything up. But I think that Arbuckle just has a little more creativity in what he wants to do. And, you know, we just have seen a few more, again, some trick plays, um, some shorter, just simpler routes instead of complicating everything or running one play over and over and over again until it, A, fails a thousand times, and B, has every kook fan pulling their hair out. <laughs> for for sure. I, I, would you say that what Arbuckle wants to do is closer to what Kim Ward ran back at Incarnate Ward? I would say so, and I, and I think okay. that's – you know, the reason Ward was able to do that and Morris was able to do that was because the competition level is different. The offensive line's not getting caved in. The receiver plays better relative to level. I think that's more of what he wants to do. I, I kind of call it, it's kind of a mixture between what Mike Leach ran and between what Eric Morris ran. So it's not the, you're going to run four verts 95 times a game and, and pass 100,000 times a game, but it's not going to be bubble screen, bubble screen, bubble screen, bubble screen. It's a little bit of a, of a variation um, and obviously Arbuckle has a lot more uh, run game in his than, than Leach did, probably about the same as Morris. But also the tight ends really weren't involved last year, and part of that was they're getting installed. They hadn't been at Washington State in a decade. Arbuckle used them pretty regularly in his offense this year. Even if they're not catching passes, there was a lot more 11 or 12 personnel. It makes a lot of sense. There's, there's just so many kind of unique stats that stand out about, about this team. I mean, they were almost never blitzed. They had one of like the lowest blitz faced pressure rates, which to me just suggests it's just jailbreak from the D line from the word go a lot of times. And then Ward was kind of especially bad at avoiding pressure when he had it. But at the same time, like to me, that feels like if it's immediate pressure, that's different than like eventual pressure, right? It's kind of hard to avoid it if you just get it right from the jump. And if, if there's nobody open um, and you're right, like their downfield passing stuff was, was pretty sketchy. Uh, they do lose uh, Stribling and Farrell, but they bring in Josh Kelly. They bring in Kyle Williams. Are, I assume those guys will play prominent roles. Are, are there any young guys that we should know about? I watched the spring game. Sheffield kind of looked pretty good, man. Like, is he going to 
we, we, we think that's going to carry over for uh, for the fall? I would say so. We, you know, DT is an interesting one as a JUCO guy that we saw flashes like he showed in the spring game. He had a scrimmage like that too, and, and just unbelievably fast. I mean, electric with the ball. His one issue was drops sometimes. Now they weren't frequent to be like uh, that's a real problem, but there were a couple occasions where ball hits his hands and hits the turf. So he's a guy who I think will figure in very heavily in the slot. Uh, Kelly will be a big factor. Wanted to see a little more from Williams in the spring. He, again, wasn't bad by any means, but maybe didn't have quite the impact that I think uh, we were expecting early on. Um, now, the spring doesn't always tell us a whole lot. Fall camp might be a better indicator. But with the other two guys to watch, uh, Zion Nunnally, who was this is his third year with the team, big, talented receiver. He's fast. He's athletic. He couldn't catch the ball last year. I think he had four drops and like nine targets. The drops seem to have disappeared because he was really steady. Um, he had another. He had a really good spring game. He had a massive scrimmage the week before. I think he had four catches, 148 yards, a couple touchdowns. Then the other one is Carlos Hernandez, a prep signee, so an early enrollee freshman. And this guy was – it was almost like watching a young Gabe Marks. And maybe not to that talent level yet, but he's feisty. He's fiery. I mean, he's a guy who, as Dickert pointed out a few times, he should be preparing for, for prom here in, in a couple of weeks. And he's out there going up against, you know, college corners and guys a lot bigger and stronger than him but he didn't back down from anyone he was one of their better blockers on the outside and then you know we we talked about him a lot in the spring lo and behold his first catch in the spring game he fumbles he comes back though ends up with four catches for 70 yards he's a guy who I think at this point is going to figure into the rotation probably won't start or play a ton of snaps but the way he performed in the spring I don't think they'll be able to keep him off the field he was one of their better receivers from day one until day 15. That, that's that's awesome to know then uh offensive line last year you mentioned it was just legitimately poor um are we expecting big improvement this year i i think purely because i don't know how much worse it could get but um obviously the big one to replace was Jarrett kingston at left tackle and it wasn't a great line with him it was really not a good line without him um and he's obviously off to ufc usc um you know connor gondis has taken some big strides and has really emerged as the leader at, at center um, I think Falili Famo ha- has locked down the right tackle spot. Um, so then it's kind of a, a four-man battle for three spots. You've got Esapole and Christian Hilborn at left tackle. You've got Maake Fafita and Christian Hilborn at left guard. And you've got Christian Kanu and Maake Fafita at right guard. So it's going to be who's the best of those of those three or those four that earn the starting spots. Now, none of, again, the offensive line got better throughout the spring. You know, the first scrimmage they gave up, I think it was 11 sacks or something. It was It was bad. Um, and, and granted, this is without full contact and um, and so on. But, you know, when you give up 11 sacks in a scrimmage and Ron Stone and Brennan Jackson don't play, okay, that's probably not great. It got better in the second scrimmage. I think it was down to four or five. And then by the spring game, the starting line only gave up two sacks. Those came on the last couple plays, I think, with, uh, with Emmett Brown in the game, and he fumbled one of the snaps. So it got better. And then the key is going to be, okay, who's your left tackle? If it's I th- To me, it's Pole. I think he has – in the lead right now, he's a, you know, his brother played at, at Wazoo, was a, had a, you know, pretty iconic pick in the 2012 Apple Cup. Um, and he's, uh, Pole is loud. He's, I mean, he's got this war cry. You stand next to him, you're going to need, you know, hearing aids. It, it's, it is loud, but he's huge. Six, seven, three, twenty-five. only his third year playing football, but he has, he's very easy to mold. And I think he's kind of right up the alley of what McGuire has done in the past. And then I think Hilborn will win the left guard job. I think he's got enough experience. He's improved so much from his, you know, disastrous Sun Bowl debut back in, in 21. And then it comes down to Nkandu and Fafita at right guard. Fafita's a returner. He's played a lot at Washington State. And Kanu's kind of a, you know, more of the highly touted transfer from Southern Utah. They rotated a lot. Fafita was getting more of the reps late in the spring. And Kanu got him early. So I think it'll come down to those two at right guard. But I could be completely wrong, and I, none of that could be true. But that's just kind of my my feel of the situation um, is that you'll see Pole at left tackle, Hillborn at left guard, and then Inkanu and, and Fafita at right guard. And, you know, the hope is that it's it's not going to all of a sudden become, you know, uh, the greatest offensive line of all time. But I think it'll certainly be better than what it was uh, last year because, it again, it, it can't get a whole lot worse than what it was. Did you know that while over 60% of Americans dream of starting their own business, less than 20% of them take the first step? The reason? Building a business is tough. Taylor Brands is simplifying the business journey. From launching and managing 
To grow in your business, Taylor Brands isn't just another tool. It's your online business partner from launch to success. With Taylor Brands, building your dream business becomes an effortless experience. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, ensuring you have everything you need in one place. From LLC formation to bookkeeping, invoicing to acquiring licenses and permits, and even setting up your bank account, Taylor Brands handles it all seamlessly. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans using our link, taylorbrands.com slash Sports. That's T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash CBS Sports. So start your business journey today with Taylor Brands. On May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount+. Plus. Yeah, I mean, definitely one of the worst in in Power Five. I, I guess there's sort of a distinction with this schedule. Uh, before we get to defense, I, I just just taking a look at this. You know, it, like returning to a bowl game is obviously important. You want to do more than that, but like there are certain games you identify where like you don't need to be a good offensive line. You just need to be competent, and then you figure like this defense and, and the offense will score enough. Like, in Northern Colorado, Colorado State, both Arizona schools, both the Northern California schools, and Colorado, right? Like that's. Those are sort of you. You need need to hit those layups if you if you want to call them layups to to get to a bowl. And then, sort of, if the line is a little bit better than below average, if they can get to like below average plus or average, then maybe you can pick off, you know, Oregon State, UCLA, Washington, you know, say Oregon, like something like that. Like to me, the schedule is kind of Wisconsin. We'll see how they look. Obviously, Washington State, their D line played really well last year in in beating those guys. I don't know, like the schedule kind of splits to me, like like pretty like it's sort of a defined six and six almost. As far right. As, like, and I, I think when you look at last year, they beat everyone with the exception of Wisconsin. They beat everyone they should have beat. I mean, they, yeah. they didn't have the they didn't get run into a trap game or run into a game where how the heck did we lose that? They just didn't beat anyone again outside of Wisconsin. That was un, I mean, they didn't beat the top end of the Pac-12. Um, you know, they lost to Oregon, USC, Oregon State, Washington. Um, Utah, and I think when you look at this year, for them to do that, as you said, it's going to have to take a better offensive line play because the key part of all of those losses was the offensive line wasn't good enough. I mean, you look at the USC game, and uh, you know, I, I remember joking with my dad a couple weeks ago during the draft that there was no highlights from the USC Wazoo game when when Tuli Tui Pelotu got drafted. They they had one from twenty twenty one, but he had four sacks in that game. You could have just that could have been his highlight package. You don't need to show anything else. Um, and then you look at the what defense played its butt off in that game. Yeah, the defense and then, was great. I mean, like, like you stopped Caleb Williams that many times, and like that's got to be frustrating for the defense. Just like, right, guys, come right. On. Like again, like we're going to stop the Heisman winner. Like, yeah, hold on. I, 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 I watched that. that was... Thirty points. That's that's a victory. Um, no and in the Coliseum too, if I recall. Right, right. Yeah, you know, you hold Utah. Granted, without rising, without uh, I think Tavion Thomas was out for that game. Without just about everybody. You hold them to 21, but you can't get the offense because they're providing pressure with the Reeds and with Fillinger. Um, you know, you look at the Oregon game and it's, uh, you know, a mixture of everybody coming down. And then you look at the Washington game and Braylon Trice and Jeremiah Martin and ZTF, they all get they all get home. And, um, you know, in Oregon State, it was it was again, it was everybody. Everyone was in the backfield at one point or another. So and then you look at the games they won and well, yeah, Ward basically stayed upright the entire game. Arizona. Stanford, ASU, they couldn't generate pressure. Even Wisconsin, as great as Herbig was, he didn't have a massive game like you maybe would have thought he would have against that offensive line. So it's the key to the offensive success. If they're going to pick off one of those big teams, you know, no USC or Utah this year, but if they're going to pick off UCLA or they're going to, you know, get one of the Oregon schools, the offensive line is going to have to hold up. So last year, this is the best Washington State defense in 15 years. I think we could say, like, maybe like playing Utah with, without rising juices the numbers a little bit, but still, like, I don't think I could recall a better Washington State defense. And they've got like a couple of legitimate pros on, on, or at least had, and still have some. I, I don't know. Does it feel like they kind of wasted that a little bit because the offense just couldn't get it going? And like, like that's got to be the feeling. They don't want to do that again. Like they have right. to you know, kind of step up and. 
the only thing this defense did poorly last year was it occasionally gave up the bomb, maybe a little too frequently. Like, like you could get over the top of them if you could get it blocked up, I guess. But I mean, Jackson and Stone, I'm not sure if our listeners know, because I mean, some some go to bed and Washington State is not like a big time national program. These guys got some real pass rush juice to them. Right. And I think it was, you know, um, it was somewhat of maybe an eight or nine win defense and just just five or six win offense last year. And it, you know, you look at a game like, again, like USC, you hold Caleb Williams to 30. You should be in that game. You hold Oregon State on the road to, to 24. You should be in that game. You hold Utah to 21. You should be in that game. You know, the one game that they, the two games they really let down, uh, Oregon. And, and even then there was a pick six involved and Oregon scored a late touchdown. And then obviously the Apple Cup where the offense still did some of its job. And then, you know, UW's offense was just that good last year. But you look at the rest of the games and, you know, on, on especially when you consider that there were games where the Cougar offense would come out firing, they would score, you know, they were up, 20, I think, 28 nothing on ASU at half. That game was a 28-18 game, and had it not been, you know, for the clock running out, that could have gotten a lot closer. And the defense had to hold really until it started just to get tired late. You know, you look at Arizona even, great, yeah, it's 31 nothing at one point, you know, one of which the defense scored. Arizona makes a push late. Um, you know, it, it, you look at Cal, they score 21 point, or 28 points on Cal, have to score two touchdowns late, and the defense kind of holds off. So, it was the best defense I had seen from a Washington State team since I started school in 2015. So that's, you know, eight seasons now. Uh, the 17 defense was good early and then kind of let down as the season wore on. That had Hercules Matafa, it had some, um, Frankie Luvu, <clears throat> some really good players. But, you know, I, I think there was somewhat of a feeling from, you know, and obviously no one would ever say it from the defensive side, but that, yeah, that they could have won more games if the offense was just, a little bit better. I mean, if you had one of the, I mean, gosh, you combine one of those leech offenses with that defense, that's a nine or 10 win team. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that was a better defense, I think, than the, than the 18 defense that won 11 games. And granted, they won 11 games largely because of Gardner Minshew, but that was a solid defense that year. I mean, even, you know, you look at the games they lost, one was, you know, USC on the road, which was just a weird game with, uh, with penalties and targeting and so on. And then they lost the Apple Cup and you'd have only scored 28 points in that game. That's just the offense that let down. So I, I think that it was a, a really good defense. And obviously it's going to be a different defense, though. You know, you you lose two really good linebackers. Uh, you lose a starting corner. You lose your star nickel. So I, I think it's going to be different. But I also think it still has the potential to be a very good defense. It's just going to have to be good in a different way. I was going to ask you about that. So I, I mean, just kind of working front to back here. Stone and Jackson are back, which is great. But you do lose, I mean, what? 1100 1200 snaps of defensive tackle play like the, the top three guys there on the interior are are gone it how much of a step back will they will they see there that's a good question and i think i'm not sure how big it will be and okay. you know as experienced as pule mujahid and mejia were i wouldn't say any of them were game breakers they were good players um and they had good careers but i think what you're going to see from washington state of the defensive tackle position is hopefully a little more of the dynamic game breaker type in terms of pass rush, you know, Nusi Milani and David Gusta, the projected starters right now, I'd be pretty stunned if it wasn't the two of them. They're pretty, pretty electric in how they can get to the quarterback. Um, and they and, played and last saw, year some too. I mean, it's not like yeah, they had like yeah. snaps. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And and we saw it a little bit last year at times, um, but I think more snaps could produce more sacks from that position. You got Naeem Rodman coming from Colorado. He'll be more of the space eater, just kind of stick him in the middle of the defense. Um, and then you've got some young guys. You got Rashad McKenzie, who was a, a big-time recruit at one point in the class of, I think it was 22, had some great issues. His recruitment kind of dried up. Washington State swooped in late and got him. Really, really athletic kid. His status is a little up in the air. He was injured during spring ball. Not sure the severity of that. Uh, Ansel Dinba was a freshman, early enrollee, who didn't look like a freshman. I mean, he was 285 pounds coming in and had some really good pass rushing moves. Not expecting a whole lot from him as a freshman, but might see some snaps. And then so the maybe guy not a huge drop-off. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was saying so maybe not a huge drop-off there at, at defensive tackle. That makes right. Sense. Right. All right. The next spot on my sheet that I'm very well, probably the most concerning thing to me. Henley was that dude was a dude. And, and I mean, like a legitimate great college football player. And the practice reports out of University of Miami are that Francisco Maui Goa is totally killing it there. So 
it's not that Washington State can't have backups that play to that level, but I feel like it's unlikely that they're going to have a, a, a linebacker do it. Those guys were all over the field. I mean, the, like havoc rates in the two and a half percent range for both your linebackers and, you know, losing what, 15 tackles for loss and almost 20 run stops in addition to all the pass lane stuff. That was what is there hope of like getting like comp play for one of the guys, maybe like that? That feels like, like a big drop off. I, I think. <clears throat> I, I just don't think there's a, a realistic scenario in which they can replace that with ease. It, it's just, and it's not an indictment on the guys they have, but again, you're talking about a guy who's going to go start at Miami and a guy who was a third round pick. I mean, those are not easy guys to replace. It doesn't matter if you're Washington state or, I mean, okay, Alabama can probably do it with these, but Washington state is anybody a- who's not Georgia is going to struggle with that. Basically, <laughs> basically yeah. we're, you know, insert NFL linebacker, probably going to the Eagles every year. Um, but, uh, you know, they did bring in a couple transfers. They got Ahmad McCullough from Maryland and and Devin Richardson from Texas. And they had they had strong springs, not to Henley's degree, wouldn't say that. Um, but, you know, guys who look like, okay, they're going to be able to fill in and play and, and not be just, you know, liabilities out there. Again, they're not going to have the playmaking ability of Henley, at least based off what we saw in the spring. But it, it's not going to just be like, oh, my God, what happened? Um, and then you got Kyle Thornton returning, good veteran guy, good leader in the room. And then you got a couple youngsters. You got uh, Tariq Al-Ukta. He was, uh, I think, a borderline four-star recruit in 2022. Uh, was injured all last year, didn't play. He had some really impressive moments during the spring. And then Hudson Cedarland from uh, from Gig Harbor played a little bit last year, didn't do a whole lot, um, but had a really good spring. He's kind of the guy who it would replace Mangoa's thump ability. Now, I mean, Mangoa was just such a heavy hitter. Cedarland doesn't have the explosiveness yet or the speed, but he can really, really hit. And and I think with those five guys, it's going to be more of a by committee. Last year, it was, it was Mangoa, it was Henley, and then a little bit of Travion Brown who went to ASU. He's not difficult to replace. They've replaced him in my opinion. Um, So it's going to be more of a, of a five man team, I think. And, and they're still poking around at transfer linebackers. Um, I think they would like to get one more in there, but I think it'll be more of the by committee. And then, you know, do you, how do you replace Henley's tackles for loss? You're not going to get it from one guy. You just don't have that guy. It, it's going to be, you know, money ball. Replace it on the aggregate uh, of what you lost in an OBP. This guy has three tackles for loss. This guy has four. So you get five guys with four tackles for loss. Now, that doesn't replace the individual impact Henley has, but that's how they're going to have to replace what you lost in him. It's just a little bit from everyone kind of coming together. But even with that, again, you, you just don't replace someone like Dayon Henley that easily it just you know because so much of what he did doesn't even show up on a stat sheet because of how explosive and how disruptive he was oh for sure uh in the back end a pretty good secondary occasionally like, like we said it was you know a little bit liable to give the bomb maybe at inopportune times but losing marsh and langford replaceable in your opinion like they almost never came off the field which is why i guess i mark it down as a concern 750 snaps for both is uh is a lot but but how do you feel about that unit Marsh will not be easy to replace. I mean, I think you saw in the Apple Cup what happened when he wasn't out there, and it was it was bad. And, um, you know, and the guy who started that game, Armani Archie, he's transferred to UConn. He had three guys competing in the spring. That was Jackson Latimua, who's a fourth-year guy. He's been around the program a while, mostly been a special teamer. Uh, Chris Jackson was a Michigan State transfer from a couple of years ago, was playing corner. They moved into nickel. And then Kapenagushkin, a JC transfer, wicked speed. I forget what it was, but some kind of ridiculous – uh, 40 yard dash time, something like okay. the four threes. Those are kind of the three guys. And the nickel play was decent in the spring. It wasn't great. It certainly was not to the level of Armani Marsh. And I think the coaches know it's not to the level of Armani Marsh. And that's where they probably need to get someone close to. That's a position battle that even Jordan Malone, the nickels coach, said, We'll decide that battle when we send the first guy out on the first snap of the season. I mean, I think it'll come down to the absolute wire. Um, they all have a little bit of something that that works in their favor. Gushkin's got speed. Jackson's got the physicality, and then a lot of you has got kind of the experience and just the knowledge of playing nickel. So I don't know how they're going to be able to replace Marsh. I don't think it'll be easy, but I think if you can get a guy who's just at least can be in the same ballpark as him, you'll be okay. If you have the same level of play you had in the Apple Cup last year, and again, I didn't mean no disrespect to Armani Archie, but it it will be a tough, it'll be tough sledding. Um, as for the corner spot. You know, you obviously it hurts to lose Langford, but you bring back Shaw Smith Wade, who was one of the best corners in the country uh, per PFF last year. And you've got really two guys competing for that other job. You got Cam Lampkin, 
Uh, transfer from Utah State, didn't play a lot last year. Wasn't great when he played. He had a really good spring, looked a, a lot better. He talked uh, to us kind of about how his mentality changed, how his kind of his drive changed, and he looked like a different player. Then you got a youngster, Javen Robinson, who had a really good fall camp last year, um, <clears throat> had a good spring last year, and then, or excuse me, had a good fall camp last year, and then had a monster spring this year. I mean, was for the first 10 days was the best corner on the field with the exception of Smith Wade. Um, I think Lampkin has the edge on the job. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's more experienced. But Robinson's going to play, and, and this is a guy who is kind of following that Smith Wade mold where you see some flashes, you see some more flashes, and then year three, he really, really breaks out um, next year. But he's a, a guy who, again, he's got to put on a little bit of weight. He's only about 165, 166, but he's another one of those guys. He's fearless. He doesn't mind letting an experienced receiver know when he breaks up a pass. He's got that trash talk ability. Um, and he's really, really quick guy who's probably going to be working in on some punt returns. He's kind of the one guy to watch that I think could really be a breakout star. The problem is, is outside of those three, it gets thin. You got two JC guys, uh, Jamori Colson and Stephen Hall. Neither had a great spring. Both kind of looked a little bit behind and probably need some big summers into some fall camp to really give you a, a true four and five option. Jamie, man, this has been incredibly comprehensive. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, only, I mean, the, the punter's back, right? Yep. Harbiner? Aber, yep. The guy's an, the guy's an awesome, like, awesome punter. So, yeah. like, that's – I mean, at least that will help the defense. Last one for you. Clearly, I think we would expect a little bit of defensive regression and hopefully some some you know regression to, of, of the positive nature for the offense. Is there any chance this offense ends up better than the defense, or we just don't think it'll be that that dramatic? It's a good question. Um, I think it's possible. I don't okay. know if I'd say it's likely. I mean, if again, just looking at spring ball, and obviously the defense is going to be ahead of the offense. Um, the defense really dominated the first several days. The offense did get going a little bit later <clears throat> as some of the defensive stars started. You know, Jaden Hicks started taking a few snaps. Jackson and Stone didn't take a whole lot. Smith Wade didn't take a whole lot. So then the offense started to look a little crisper against some more second teamers. Um, I still think the defense will have the slight edge, but it wouldn't be a shocker if the offense was was better. Last year, I think it was going to be a pretty big surprise as we got through fall camp if the offense was better. It wouldn't be as surprising this year. Gotcha. Jamie, everybody needs to visit KugFan.com. I don't think anybody in the world could give me a better rundown on Washington State unless Dickert just wants to come on here and just be super, <laughs> super honest. With no, don't get Jake. I could, I, I'll tell you more than Jake. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> awesome, man. We'll have to have you back on the show. I really appreciate the time. Awesome. Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. Hey, guys. Bud Elliott here, and welcome back to College Football Summer School on the Cover 3 Podcast. Today, I'm talking a little Baylor, and for that, I'm going to bring on Tim Watkins of Bears Illustrated. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, bud. Excited to talk about what Baylor's been doing this spring. Absolutely. So uh, last year, a, a bit of a, a step back in record, maybe not quite as big of a step back in power ratings from 2021. I know most of the, the metrics out there still had them kind of the mid-30s. Uh, so like maybe just they didn't live up to the power rating that, that they actually played to in 22, and maybe we're slightly you know, slightly close game luck, I guess, in, in, in 21. Uh, what, what was your take on, on the season? I, I think you hit it on the head. In 2021, when Baylor won the Big 12, won the Sugar Bowl, they had close game luck. Um, they won those tight, contested games. They won on the margins, stopping Oklahoma State a couple of inches from winning the Big 12 title game. Last year, they lost on those margins. They had unforced errors, untimely turnovers. Blake Shapin didn't take the step that many Baylor fans, and I know the Baylor coaches really wanted him to see, was very inconsistent in the back half of the year, primarily after that West Virginia game where he left due to a concussion. Um, so it was a season really lost on the the margins of it they lost those close games and quite honestly the defense didn't live up to expectations and when your quarterback is inconsistent and your defense is having trouble getting off the field you're really putting yourself in a lot of tighter games and your shootouts and they didn't perform in those yeah I think it's a great point by you as far as the like the the, the critical down success right so the offense most power ratings they had him kind of in, in in the mid-20s there which is a decent improvement from 2021 uh, but yet at times they, they didn't execute maybe in some of those kind of close and late downs. The the decision to go with Blake Shapin, though, which they made last spring, which allowed the backup to hit the transfer portal, a, a pretty good one, it looks like. I know he threw 10 picks, but I, when I watch Baylor and I don't get to watch every Baylor game, he looked pretty good. 
Yeah, the, the offense, I don't think from a general execution, let them down last year. It was an offense that was better and significantly better in some areas when comparing it to that 2021 season. The defense, though, went from very good on the fringes of elite in 2021 to pretty mediocre in regards to turnover creation, in regards to sack rate, in regards to third down success and getting off the field, we saw significant dips. We also saw Baylor make some pretty aggressive changes on the defensive staff in response to this with longtime defensive coordinator and kind of mentor of Dave, uh, Dave Aranda, Ron Roberts, moving on, bringing back former um, safeties coach and the the, uh, the de- co-defensive coordinator at Oregon last year in Matthew Powledge. Uh, really, that was a response to try and get better energy, try to get better cohesiveness and really create a defensive scheme that takes that step up, which is to be expected under a Dave Aranda team. So let, let's let's talk that defense before we bounce back to offense. So as you mentioned, like a, a pretty big step back for them defensively that stylistically, I thought it was curious. So they were dead last in the nation in blitz rate. They just didn't send blitzes basically ever. And when I see that, I usually think, okay, they're they're scared to death of their back end, right? And, and those guys can't hold up. But yet, Baylor also rarely rotated DBs last year. They had seven DBs play 350 or more snaps, which is a very high number. It's not like they're playing eight, 10 guys back there due to a whole bunch of injury, I guess. And now five of those seven are are gone. Is my read on that? They didn't trust those guys, but yet they still played them. Like, what does that say about the backups? There, there was a lot of very inexperienced youth behind those few key guys that really played a lot of lot of snaps. And I think one of the areas where they didn't trust them is with their deep speed. Um, it was a slower group, quite honestly, in the defensive backfield, which meant they had to play less press man. They had to drop back more. They had to play more safe coverages. And that didn't allow Baylor to really blitz as much as they wanted to. But, but remember, two of the key guys that really carried the blitz outside of the defensive linemen were Terrell Bernard and Jalen Petrie in 2021. Those guys were both gone. So that linebacker group where Matt Jones, he didn't really have a fantastic season blitzing and really rushing the passer. And that star position, they really struggled to find somebody that could really impact it. One of their best blitzers last year off the ball was Bryson Jackson. He's actually since switched to that star role where we could see him take a Jalen Pitre-like jump. I'm not saying he's going to be that good and really an All-American but he fits that mold of really seeing and attacking closer to the line of scrimmage, covering out in the flat versus last year. They really felt that that star position had to carry those receivers and tight ends deeper in the field because they had a little less speed there. So even though they lost five of the top seven DBs, you you don't think the drop-off is necessarily that big because the the newcomers are more athletic, I guess? Like they're they're, they're ready now where they weren't last year? Exactly. I I think guys like uh, Isaiah Dunson, a transfer from Miami, is going to bring some length and some more speed to the position and allow them to do that press man coverage that Baylor had to get a little bit away from last year. Tevin Williams, a sophomore, started to play a little bit last year and really showed this spring. He's going to have some learning curve, though. What's going to be fascinating is at the safety positions Well, Devin Lemire and Devin Bobby. Um, not spelled the same from the Devons perspective. God, Baylor has a lot of Devons for some reason. A lot Very of interesting quirk on the roster. Um, but both of those guys, especially Bobby, I'm extremely high on. You have backups like Cor- Corey Gordon, a, a redshirt freshman. Alfonso Allen, a highly rated uh, recruit from Florida uh, that is a, a true sophomore. Both of those guys have more speed at that deep safety position to really replicate some of what Baylor did with that single high safety look two years ago with um, with JT Woods when he had a fantastic season now playing for the, the Los Angeles Chargers. Baylor had to play a lot of two deep safety last year because of that lack of speed. With more speed on that back end, they can play some single high safety, they can press coverage, and they should be able to bring more blitzers from the, uh, from the front seven. Absolutely. So uh, defense probably takes a step forward this year, I have to think. Offense, I, I can see some positives, but at the same time, there are some things from last year's uh, team that i got to ask you about this to see if they'll be a little better this year or potentially they, they fall off. Uh, one of the things was was they they were efficient on offense, but they really struggled to hit explosive plays, especially through the air, which was strange because I think Shapin's got a pretty good arm. Um, they threw the ball to the tight ends and the backs a ton, and the outside receivers on this team just compared to the rest of the conference and, and the nation, re- relatively got very little use. So 
to me, that probably says something about the quality of player there at the outside receiver. Is that your take on it, or, or am I off there? And if so, what, how does the outside receiver spot look this year? I think you're 100% right. And it was a position, especially at the outside wide receiver position, that they had a lot of youth, a lot of experience. A guy like a four-star recruit uh, that was a true freshman, Armani Winfield, of an Auburn transfer and Hal Presley. Those guys didn't really take the big step that they wanted to, though Hal Presley did show some sparks. That's one of the reasons why they brought in a highly coveted transfer in Keytron Jackson from Arkansas, to give them another body that can win on the outside. They're really hoping for a lot more um, a health from uh, slot receiver Monterey Baldwin as well. Mm-hmm. Saw what he can do in the Sugar Bowl. He had very few touches his, his as a freshman year, and he took most of those to the house. Last year, he was ex- incredibly explosive when he was healthy, and that's going to be the trick with him. He has elite speed. He has a smaller body style that isn't going to be able to take the poundings. So how can they choose the right spots to leverage him in the jet sweeps, to take those deep shots with him, to leverage him in the quick screen game? That was one area in the spring game that we saw a quick screen. He took 65 yards for a touchdowns because he had a bigger body like Keetron Jackson blocking on the outside. How Presley set up a great block. So yes, they absolutely have to create those bigger plays. Two years ago, they were able to do that with Tyquan Thornton. They were able to hit those big runs with Treston Ebner. Last year, Richard Reese had a couple of those, but as a true freshman, he doesn't have, I think, the elite game-breaking speed that they want. What's going to be fascinating is, can Keetron Jackson win those routes outside? Can Monterey Baldwin, Baldwin extend that field and open up the deep middle for those tight ends? Drake Dabney, Drake Roberts, a transfer from UNT, should have very big roles in this offense and a deeper level than they did last year, but it has to start with success from the outside receivers. At least that's good that Jackson you know, got in for spring and, and, and impressed. I, I feel like I'd be more worried if they had to rely only on internal guys. If you can go get a transfer portal dude, it, maybe you only need one internal guy to step up each year. Uh, so w- when I look at my spreadsheets, the, the one area on this team that that's, I guess scares me because I, I feel like I kind of like this squad and, and I, I trust Dave Aranda as a coach. Uh, this offensive line lost its top four offensive linemen by snap count, and all four of them had some kind of all-conference or all-America honors. And I'm, this is a ton of offensive line talent and experience to lose. It, how big is the drop-off here, in your opinion? That's going to be one of the biggest questions. I think with the development of the defensive backfield, I would put the offensive line in really creating that cohesive unit at the forefront of questions about Baylor uh, in 2023. Luckily, I would put the two kind of offensive minds around that offensive line up against anybody in the nation. You're talking Jeff Grimes, who has excelled as a high-level Power 5 blue blood offensive line coach. You're talking Eric Mateos, a guy that is very much in demand. Georgia made a heavy run at him uh, looking for an offensive line coach prior to last year, and Baylor ponied up and really kept him in state and kept him at Baylor University. I think with those two guys, the the learning curve and the ramp-up period for a developing offensive line I feel better about, but you're absolutely right. They lost a lot of experience and a lot of high impact guys, especially at the college level. It's one of the reasons why they brought in two BYU transfers familiar with what Grimes and Mateos did uh, did at BYU and Clark and Campbell Barrington. Uh, they're really going to be looked at at that center role, a critical role uh, in this Bears outside zone, wide zone scheme, and then left tackle for Gamble Barrington. Both of them have a lot of reps and experience in this type of offense. Clark, the senior center, has been an All-American caliber player in the past. Campbell Barrington, as a freshman, was a freshman All-American at BYU. So there's a lot of building blocks to build on, but Gavin Byers is really the only other offensive line with significant experience, and he kind of rotated at that left guard position. You have youth and Tate Williams, a guy that the Baylor staff is extremely high on, really is right now one of the favorites at the right guard spot. Then you have Elijah Ellis, who I think has all Big 12 caliber uh, potential just hasn't put it together yet. He's battling with freshman Caden Siriaki for that right tackle spot along with Wes Tucker. They've got a lot of youth and bodies to throw at this. I think where Mateos and Grimes are going to have to figure out is what is the best group of five to really create that fist, really carrying with the Barrington, the Byers, and the Barrington brothers um, as the three 
who are the other two guys to really lock down that right side to create that fist, which you need in that wide zone scheme. It, if they can get this unit to just a sort of mild to moderate drop off as opposed to just an absolute cratering, it, it really could allow Baylor to be competitive, you know, for a conference title this year. Because I, I think there are some other good pieces on this squad. I, I know one thing we, we've kind of looked at on cover three, and I, I've kind of done some side work on this, is when coaches go and get guys they've already coached, they don't always turn into superstars, but I think their bust rate is relatively low because at least you know you have some baseline for, okay, this guy is not a knucklehead. I know I can coach him because you're not going to go get a guy who you hated coaching, right? And at least can can probably play at this level normally. I mean, sometimes it means you couldn't get anybody else. You're like, all right, at least I know this guy. But generally, it's it's a, it's a positive when coaches bring on. Like we were talking the other day, Lashley bringing all those guys in from Miami. Like they may not be superstars at SMU just because they played for Miami, but they could probably at least play that certain baseline level and the staff you know, at least knows those guys. Uh, Tim, where would you say is the spot on this team other than quarterback uh, where the drop off from starter or from starters to reserve, like what position group do you see like, okay, the starters can play, the backups are really sketch. Where, where, where would you say that is? I would say two spots. Number one is center. We have Clark Barrington here at that center position. Outside of that, it's really freshman Timothy, Don, and Colton Price. Um, this is a position that if there was more uh, spring attrition from the transfer uh, transfer portal outbound, I thought Baylor could bring in another interior offensive lineman for that guard, right, right guard, or that center position. Um, Clark Barrington, I think, is going to be a steady rock. If something happens to him or if they have to move him out to right guard, that drop off to center could be interesting to watch um, because it's a position that is so critical in that wide zone scheme. That center is asked to do a lot of very difficult on the move blocks. Um, And that really opens up the entire foundation of the Baylor offense when it comes to not only the run back, the traditional wide zone runs, but the counters, the play actions off of that. Everything builds off of that foundation of, can your offensive lineman make some difficult on-the-move blocks? The other, again, I think in the center of the, the defense is that nose tackle position. Um, they're young and inexperienced on that size, and they don't have a Siaki Ike anymore there. Um, they don't have the 350-pound man kind of taking on two and sometimes three blocks. So how I think uh, Jarrell Boykins, a junior college transfer, steps in, how Trey Emery, a redshirt freshman, steps into that role. They have an Oregon transfer that's going to be coming in the fall. And Tre- I, can't, I might butcher the name, but uh, Trevin Maia. Um, he's going to be a guy that could play that big and nose tackle, maybe as a pass rusher type role. Um, they have two guys in TJ Franklin and Gabe Hall that really bring them those strong side 280 plus pound defensive ends. But do they have a guy outside of Boykins that really has the strength, the experience, and pretty much the butt and the thighs to hold his own in that middle of that defense? And Ika was a guy that, that uh, Aranda brought with him from LSU, right? So like, another example of, of you know going to get guys you, you've been with before. Of, of the down linemen that were in for spring, the, the, the transfers, did anybody like – kind of approximate eager or anywhere close or it just it looks like a, like a potential weakness here it, it could be a potential weakness here there's not a lot of ecas especially for a school like baylor you got to grab some of those from the southeastern conference after they decide they haven't been able to get enough playing time because another five star has been recruited yeah. above them so baylor's not going to get a four or five star nose tackle most likely just naturally um so the ability to find some depth there i think this is going to be a fascinating conversation for dennis johnson the defense of line coach at Baylor, does Baylor go to more three or four man uh, uh, fronts? Last year, they would play that peso front quite a bit with two rush kind of jack linebackers around Ika in those pass rush situations. I don't know if they have the bulk to be able to do that. Do they stay with a traditional three-man front or look at a four-man front and move Gabe Hall or TJ Franklin inside to get more of a jack rusher on one end? I think there's going to be some different looks, and that might be one of the reasons that Baylor made that switch of defensive coordinator to really drive some different pass rush looks to increase and improve that pass rush effect, uh, uh, effectiveness that we saw dip last year. If you can play more, you know, if, if you need to play more, more one gap, obviously it does help to be, to be able to play a little more single high in the back end. Uh, last one for me here, Tim, I really appreciate the time today joining us on the Buddy Lake College Ball Summer School here on the Coverage Podcast. So Blake Shapin last, I mean, I thought it was, I won't say ballsy, but like the staff 
made the decision to go with him over a more experienced guy. The decision, I think, for the most part, paid off. It, do you see any kind of leap from him in, in the spring? Because like there was some kind of whispers, and some of the throws he makes are really that the guy has a, some serious arm talent. It, do you think he has the potential to be like a top couple rounds pick here? That's that's a fascinating question because I think from a a fundamental standpoint his footwork has to get a lot better. We still saw it in the spring game, which was a little bit concerning where he throws without the proper footwork. And that's where he's really trusting that shortstop arm, that baseball arm that he has to really throw off schedule a little bit and throw off balance. And that's where he gets himself in trouble. He's late on throws. He can be behind on throws. He floats him over the middle and that's red flags, sirens going off danger areas. And that's where he really struggled with last year. That's going to be up to Sean Bell, um, the Baylor uh, ex-legendary quarterback and as well as their current quarterback coach. He has to get shapen to make those right reads and do them with the proper fundamentals because when he sets, when his fundamentals and his feet are in line with his shoulders and he's throwing, throwing on time, he has probably day three potential. Um, it's when he decides to be a shortstop all of a sudden that he does get into trouble. Um, so that's going to be fascinating with him. They obviously took some insurance out. They lost Kyron Jones to Virginia Tech in the transfer portal uh, late last year. Uh, they brought in Mississippi State transfer Sawyer Robertson, a guy that is uh, was a four-star recruit, and Baylor absolutely loves him. He showed out very, very well in the spring game and has a lot of fans in the program. And it was, it was fascinating. At the end of spring camp, right before the spring game, Dave Randa said, yeah, we're going to name a starting quarterback just like we did the prior year before that transfer portal kind of closed to allow, allow a guy like Gary Behannon to find a spot and eventually uh, land at South Florida. They didn't really actually name that quarterback yet. Hmm. That's still an unanswered question. Um, most are thinking Shapin's going to be the guy. I personally think he is as well. This is an offense with a lot of layers to it. And I think with the quarterback change from Bohannon limiting kind of the passing game and limiting what they could do with that downfield passing attack that we saw Grimes do with um, uh, Zach Wilson at BYU. You didn't really see that two years ago. You saw a little bit more of it last year with Shapin. I think with Shapin, again, you'll see more of that as he learns those schemes and tactics. That isn't to say I think Sawyer could play some uh, next uh, this coming year, especially if Shapin struggles with those fundamentals, struggles with that ball security. You're going from a 6'4 athletic guy that could probably enact the zone read and kind of quarterback run game that was very effective with Behannon, but has the strength and the accuracy to get the ball down the field, kind of giving you best of those both worlds. The upside is probably higher with Robertson but that floor is probably safer with a guy like Blake Shapin, at least for the first half of the season. Tim Watkins really enjoyed this. Bears Illustrated. Make sure you guys check it out. The best Baylor coverage out there. We'll see you next time. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Bud Elliott's College Football Summer School on the Cover 3 Podcast Network. And today, we're going to talk a little Boston College with, with Mitch Wolf of Eagle Insider. Uh, Mitch, uh, first time we've met. Welcome to the show, man. I'm very excited to be here. I'm a big fan of the show, a uh, really constant listener, and think you guys are one of the best out there. I appreciate it. We, we, uh, we're going to study up here on the BC Eagles. So a uh, really frustrating year last year, three and nine uh, in the conversation for the worst power five team in the country. Aside from, I guess you got to say like non-Colorado division, because that was just something <laughs> special they had run out there last year. And, uh, and, and I mean, just, I guess injuries up front, it, it would be hard to to win with what they had last year. Is there any positive to take away from last season? I think the coaching staff and the team is treating last year as kind of a burn the tape year because the injuries mounted so quickly and that they concentrate themselves at certain positions. You know, the offensive line, you lose Christian Mahogany during the summer, you lose your starting right tackle week two, you're starting left guard in week three or four. And by then you're, you're starting converted defensive lineman and true freshman and guys are still getting hurt. So you're just cycling guys in and out. Every game had a different starting combination. So, you know, there wasn't any consistency and guys just weren't developing, but the narrative now is that at least you know, you're getting guys back. Mahogany's back. Uh, you bring in two transfers, Kyle Hergel from Texas State, Logan Taylor from Virginia. And at this point now, at, if nothing else, they have depth. So if there is another one or two injuries, they have guys who have some playing experience 
in, you know, big time college football. So like I said, last year's burned the tape. So I think that's going to kind of skew some analysis of BC in terms of predictive measures. But in terms of the guys are getting back, I think that the offensive line, essentially because they were so bad last year, I actually wrote something that I found that they were the uh, second worst rushing output among power five non Mike Leach coached teams in the last 15 years, because wow. they, I think, yeah, because their rush, rushing guards pretty were just so bad. Um, but now you're getting a lot of guys back. And if nothing else, if they can just be average, you know, this offense should be able to, you know, get something going. It, it's, it's tough to cover a team like that too, because it, you're essentially, I, I've, I've been there. You're almost riding the same column every week. Like, you know, they, oh, yeah. they can't block the opponent at all. And it's just, if you run out of bodies, you run out of bodies. And they, mm-hmm. they sure they sure as heck did. Uh, so some changes here. Get new new offensive coordinator Rob Chizinski, and then Steve Shimko is also a coordinator. I'm I'm trying to make make sense of, of kind of how they announced this. The way that I'm interpreting it is that so they, they I think they're listed, or at least this is how they were introduced as co-coordinators. And the way I see it is that Chizinski, who has NFL experience in terms of play calling, college experience in terms of play calling, I think he'll be the one kind of game planning at the higher level and then doing play calling on game day. And then Steve Shimko's job is kind of to be the translator or liaison to the quarterbacks and the rest of the offense saying, okay, what plays, you know, this, this is what our opponent likes to do. This is where we think we can exploit them. What kind of plays do you like that you want to keep them in the game plan? So I think that, you know, one is kind of the, the big picture guy and the other one is the, you know, kind of more minutia coordinator, if you will. That makes sense. Uh, what, what are we expecting change-wise based on either what you've seen or, or, or what you've seen in the past these guys or, or what, what the staff said? In terms of – I think the offense is going to be – in terms of the greater ideas, is decently similar. Um, I think this offense is going to try to be more balanced. Um, it's still going to be mostly a pro-style attack with a lot of play – a lot of uh, – a lot of different uh, – diverse run game, uh, heavy play action. Um, you got Emmett Moorhead who – you know, towards he had some up and down play, but when he was good and you know had some time to throw, he had some really nice plays. Um, so again, you get him a better offensive line, you get him a run game that again it can at least be average and not one of the worst, or if not the worst in the country. You can at least get something going. So I think you know losing a guy like Zay Flowers is obviously huge, uh, but they bring in Ryan O'Keefe from UCF, who uh, is expected to have a big year. He's donning the number four jersey. Not sure he's going to have the exact type of production that they had in just one year but he at least brings that uh, vertical speed that flowers also brought you're bringing back a decent amount of uh, competent offensive weapons and guys like joseph griffin jr dino tomlin uh, Jaden williams and in the running back room you've got guys like pat garwo um, uh, alex broom and kai robishaw who was transferred from west kentucky and a tight end you got george takis and jeremiah franklin um so i think what i'd like to see is a very diverse offense you know using a lot of different personnel groupings because you don't i wouldn't say they have that one guy like they had with flowers where the entire offense is going to run through him so what i'm hoping to see is that they are able to use the lack of that one big star to kind of keep defense off balance by not focusing the targets or touches with one player that makes sense i i I didn't get to watch every boston college game Last year, one I watched the whole thing. I think it was a Friday night game, maybe a Thursday night game. Was the uh, the Duke game? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, like they had a lot of guys just mossing people for, mm-hmm. for like, like against Duke last year. And I was like, this is this is more than just a flowers. I mean, the offense is chuck and duck because like they don't have any actual time, and even Duke's mm-hmm. defensive line is getting through. But am I wrong to think that this is actually a decent receiving core? No, I wouldn't say so at all. Joseph Griffin Jr. had a really strong end of the year. He that was his kind of coming out party game where he had a huge game. He caught the game winning touchdown against NC State. Um, and then, you know, the performances against Notre Dame was were just, a, again, a burn the tape kind of game. And Syracuse was kind of up now. But yeah, the Duke game was, I would kind of say, the proof of concept game where yeah. You know, even though they got behind, the defense had some rough plays early in the game. They came back. They had a shot to win. Uh, they, the defense forced a lot of turnovers. The offense kind of kept coming, uh, but they just couldn't get it done. You know, the, the time ran out, essentially. But, yeah, I mean, I think the receiving core is arguably the strength of this team because you have a big X receiver in Joseph Griffin who can be your ball winner on the outside. You have a guy like Ryan O'Keefe who can do some of the things that Zay Flowers does or they say flowers did in terms of run after the catch, get open quickly, make some plays like that, uh, be a vertical threat downfield. And then you've got some role, uh, some guys, you know, deeper on the depth chart, like, like I said, like Jaden Williams, you know, Tomlin, who can be 
kind of your your third options who can get you some things done for you. Williams has been a little inconsistent since a hot start to his freshman year two years ago, but I'm kind of hoping that with him taking on a slightly reduced role where he doesn't have as much responsibility, he can then flourish uh, by having less of the weight of the offense on his shoulders. So how big of a step can this offensive line make it? They do return everybody who played 250 or more snaps last year. They get Mahogany back. Is he... I assume he's 100%, right? He is. Um, so his injury occurred in June last year, if I remember correctly. So by the time the season rolls around, he will have had about 15 months to recover. Um, last I heard in spring, he was he was participating in um, individual drills and working into some lighter team drills. So I think he is going to be on track to start week one. And that that's just going to be a huge boon for this entire offensive line because you're plugging him in next to Drew Kendall, who was a very high, highly recruited player. Um obviously got thrown into the fire last year um, with guys revolving around him. So he had a bit of a, a tough year, but I would say generally improved as the year went on. Uh, Isaac Pilo is a, a returning starter at left tackle. Who's been a solid player. Kyle Hergel uh, from tech transfer tech state has played a bunch of football, you know, isn't going to wow you with his, you know, athleticism or strength, but he's very technically refined. He knows what to do. He's going to be a big help in terms surrounding a guy like Kendall with veterans like Hergel and Mahogany is going to be huge because that's going to eliminate a lot of the mental mistakes that you saw, especially early in the season for BC and right tackle is a bit of a uh, competition right now between uh, sophomore Jude Barry, who got some playing time late in the year and the transfer from Virginia, Logan Taylor, who I believe played high school ball with Emmett Moorhead and uh, linebacker Bryce Steele. So he has some familiarity with some of the BC guys, but again, you know, this offense line was the worst in the country uh, across a multitude of measures. So if you're just getting from the worst to the middle of the road, that's just going to be a significant improvement. That's going to be a trickle down effect for the entire offense, because like you said, there was just no ability to run the ball whatsoever for the entire season. And that really just hampered the entire offense because opponents knew that they weren't going to be able to run the ball and then they were going to have to pass and then they could just tee off and get after the quarterback. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, that was and like I thought Jerkovic actually avoided pressure, you know, a decent bit. Like they're they're sacked almost ten percent of dropbacks last year, which mm-hmm. is kind of kind of nuts. Um, let's let's go ahead and switch over here to the offensive side of the ball. They, they really cratered here, which was surprising. I think Jeff Hathley is, is a pretty accomplished defensive coach, and you know, they were fiftieth in twenty twenty one in in the uh, or not fifty forty first in twenty twenty one, fifty fourth in twenty twenty in defensive rating, and then. Bill Connolly had him at 102nd last year. How how much of this is coaching? How much is this talent? How much of this is just, I don't want to say giving up, but like it is discouraging if you know the offense just absolutely cannot score. Honestly, I think in the 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 last two games of the season, the Notre Dame game where they got blown out forty four nothing, and then the second half of the Syracuse game where things just kind of got out of hand, was where you saw a little bit of give up. For most of the season, I thought it, that that was avoided, and I think the biggest issue was just being on the field so much because it was, you know, just offense just kept three and out, three and out turnover and just couldn't maintain possessions. The defense just had to play so many snaps. And then with that, the injuries, especially in secondary started to mount, you know, by the final game, they were throwing out, um, you know, walk on or, you know, priority walk on freshman to start at corner against Syracuse, who, you know, up and down offense, but it was just, you know, that was a, a horror show. Um, but I think the interesting thing that Halfley has done this offseason is, you know, he's been a guy that has been very open about his reticence to use the transfer portal. But this offseason, he has kind of done away with that. I'm interested to talk to him more about what changed exactly. But no position has gotten a bigger facelift than secondary because you, you know, guys like Josh DeBerry and CJ Burton portal out. Jaden Woodbay goes to the NFL. You retain Elijah Jones, who's going to be the veteran guy there, but you bring in uh some fcs some transfers you get kari johnson from arkansas you get victor nelson jr from long island university and alex washington from harvard and johnson is a bit of a he's had some injuries but he can kind of play everywhere be a versatile slot defender do some safety stuff but nelson and washington are interesting because they are both very tall very long defensive backs and i expect nelson to be starting at strong safety and washington to start across from jones but i the other one is Cole Batson is going to be taking over as the starting free safety who's listed at 6'4". So you've got all these extremely long defensive backs. And that seems to be I'm, I'm curious if that was an intentional uh, decision to try to maybe get get more takeaways with better ball skills or be more aggressive with press coverage. But that's a position group that Halfley really turned over this offseason by bringing in a lot of transfers to kind of change the vibe there. Um, but 
you know, as I mentioned with Don Menazaraku earlier, that's going to be their, their main guy is the edge rusher. Um, he has had a great year, uh, second team, all ACC, eight and a half sacks. Um, you're losing Marcus Valdez, who is kind of the heart and soul of the defense for many years, but you've still got a pretty deep defensive line. Sheeta Salah is back. Uh, Nidwek Paula had a very strong spring, and you've got just a ton of bodies at defensive end. And the interior is a little more questionable. Um, you've got two good starters in Cam Horsley and Quan Williams, but the depth there is a little suspect due to injuries. They did bring in Caleb Jones, a defensive tackle from North Carolina A&T. And linebackers, you're bringing everybody back, including Vinny DePalma, another kind of heart and soul guy. But Cam Arnold is going to be the, the mainstay there linebacker. So I think the biggest issue, again, was just the fact that they had to play so much and they were just put in bad positions by the offense. And I think you're going to kind of see a rebound with them this year. That, that would make sense. The, the non-conference schedule is pretty friendly. There, there's no, no Irish on the schedule this year. So Northern Illinois, Holy Cross, uh, Army, and UConn, like the mm-hmm. – it's not unreasonable to think that they they could pull four wins out of that, and then it, in that case they they also they dodge uh, they dodge Clemson, FSU, and North they Carolina. Gotta, they, they they have FSU, I believe. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. I yes. believe it's week three. But the Clemson thing is big because that was a quote rivalry, if you can call it that. Uh, given that somebody made up a trophy for some reason for that game, there's but, a trophy for this game. Yes, it's the. I'm gonna have to look it up, but wow, it's the. McFadden something trophy. Um, but I don't know who exactly made it up, but I think it was just Clemson trying to say, hey, we can add another trophy to our trophy case by beating up on the school in New England. Um, man, why isn't it coming up? But I know McFadden is in the name. Um, wow. The O'Rourke McFadden trophy was created in 2008, actually by the BC Gridiron Club. So it wasn't, we just really screwed ourselves there by making a trophy that we would never win. <laughs> but this is yeah the the lack of divisions really helps bc this year because they've had to face clemson so much over the last few years they had a stretch i believe three years in a row where they had to go to death valley uh which was just rough even though they were able to keep those games close but yeah i mean the non-cons as bc you know covering bc and as a bc fan you see you kind of have seen this just trend of six and six and anything beyond that is a major win and this schedule it, on paper, it sets up nicely to finally break that threshold. So, but I mean, like you said, it starts with you have to win these non-conference games. You know, at Army Week Six, um, I know that the uh, Black Knights are kind of transitioning away from the triple option uh, in some way, but you know they're still going to have that. That's going to be a tough game on the road. But yeah, dodging Clemson, dodging UNC, dodging NC State, even yeah, I think this you get both of Virginias who are kind of in rebuilding phases. You get. Georgia Tech, who's, re- who's kind of starting a new leaf. you got Louisville, who is losing a ton of talent, and they're starting with a new coach. Um, and then Q's you've got five draft picks. Yep, yep, Q's, um, that That is, you know, winnable game. So a lot of the games on the schedule are winnable, but, uh, you know, if any, if past performance is any indicator, which it usually isn't, but, you know, you just kind of have to hold hope at a at an arm's length before going into the season for real. <laughs> for for sure, man. I I... I... I'm fascinated to see what happens with, with, with this team. Um, Mitch, really appreciate you coming on. Guys, make sure you check out Eagle Insider, the best Boston College coach out there for my money and part of the 24-7 Sports Network, and we'll have to have you back on the show soon. Absolutely. Thank you very much, bud.